This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Jesse Williams wrote, Life is partly what we make it and partly what is made by the friends we choose. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Please subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm happy to welcome Lydia Denworth to the show today to talk about her new book, Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and the Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Lydia Denworth is a science writer and contributing editor for Scientific American. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications. Lydia Denworth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. It's good to be here. Before we begin, I'd like to know a little bit about yourself. Specifically, was there someone or something particularly influential in your intellectual development? Well, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that way before. Um, <laughs> we, we aim to please. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yes. Uh, one, I, do I have to pick just one? There are several, but some that come to mind. So I, um, as a child, I always was interested in books and words and writing. I was a voracious reader, um, but I started reading The New Yorker relatively young, and I found the the work of John McPhee. Uh, so, he, you know, who is one of our great sort of nonfiction writers in the United States. And I was so captivated by the way he could make um, anything interesting. So I never really aspired to write fiction. I always wanted to be a writer, and I always wanted to do nonfiction. Um, And then later, though, when I started working for magazines, I was at Newsweek as a young uh, researcher slash reporter. And um, I got asked by Sharon Begley, who was a great uh, science journalist here in the U.S., to help her on a story about physics, about quarks. And I was not a science driven person. I had, in fact, I had taken the minimum amount of science possible in high school and college. And yet here I am a science writer. And I think in some ways we have Sharon to thank for that. Um, She told me then that uh, I needed to believe in my ability to ask questions and, and that I was plenty smart enough to do it. And I shouldn't worry about, you know, not having, um, a deep background in science. And, um, and I, so I worked quite a bit with Sharon in those years. Then I moved on to do other things for a while, but I circled back mid-career and now really have found my footing writing about science, talking, you know, I mean, journalists like me are, one of our jobs is to translate science for, um, 
for a lay audience, but also to cast a critical eye on it. But I find it now deeply interesting. I can't believe I wasn't interested before. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm so kind of thrilled, uh, you know, halfway through my adulthood that I found this this place to work and because I find it um, so intellectually satisfying every day. Well, it sounds like you didn't let your schooling get in the way of your education. <laughs> that, that's a good way of putting it. That's yeah. right. Well, your, your book is on a, a topic very dear to my heart, and it follows the thread of friendship from the cellular level to the animal world mm-hmm. and on through the complex human emotional and social life of the 21st century. In perusing all of that, what was the most surprising thing you learned about friendship along the way? Well, again, I have two answers because one is just right at the beginning. The whole reason I wanted to write the book was that I just found it surprising. Friendship is something we think we know so much about, and it's so familiar in so many ways. So to discover that there was this biology to friendship and an evolutionary story there was really surprising and interesting to me. And I thought if I didn't realize that, and here I was someone who was covering science, um, you know, for a living, then maybe other people didn't know that either. So I started there, but then of all of the specific things that I covered in the book, Perhaps the most surprising, certainly the most kind of gee whiz cool is the neuroscience I describe at the end of the book where um, people have, uh, the scientists have been able to see by scanning people's brains that our our way of processing the world um, looks much more like the way our friends process the world than it does like the way people we're less close to. Do it to the extent that if they just look at your brain processing when you're watching videos, if they just are looking at the results they're getting, they can predict who's closer to who in terms of friendship, which means that we literally see and hear the world more like our friends than like people that we're less close to. And that means that the idea that we, you know, there's all kinds of um, little sayings like birds of a feather feather flock together. And even Aristotle said that, you know, similarity is um, part of friendship. But I don't know that anybody imagined that it was right down to the level of the way you process the auditory and visual world. And it is. Yes, that was an amazing thing. It was really so remarkable to read that. It's kind of a brain synchrony between friends. Yes. And it seems almost mystical. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I loved, so Talia Wheatley is the neuroscientist at Dartmouth who was one of them who was working on that. And she has such wonderful ways of talking about it as friendship is a, is a dance between two brains kind of coming together and, and making something new together. Um, And I thought that was such a charming way to, to describe it and to think about it. But the big question, and it was unanswered at the time that I had to finish my reporting and write the book, was is whether we start out more like our friends in our brain processing or whether we become more like our friends over time as we get to know each other. And, you know, like a lot of things in life, the answer is probably that a little of both. 
Um, and we do see some signs of synchrony increasing with um, with exposure to other people. But yes, I agree. There is something still sort of mystical and and just wonderful about it. That yes, and and the biological basis of friendship is a, a little easier to understand since we've uh, all probably read the great deal of writing about loneliness lately. It's even been called an, an epidemic, and England and Japan have government ministers of loneliness. I, I'm not sure loneliness is the opposite of friendship, but it's certainly somewhere at the other side of a continuum. What what does uh, your exploration of friendship say about loneliness? Well, it's, it is exactly that. I do think of them as two ends of a continuum, and it's the continuum that looks at your level of social integration, basically. And you're, so if you have, you know, strong friendships, somebody with strong friendships at one end and loneliness at the other end, we find that the, the physical effects of those things, um, either to the negative with loneliness or to for the positive with with friendship are are related they're you know um so for instance your your heart rate changes your cardiovascular functioning changes as a result of whether you're lonely or feel socially connected your um immune system changes so you're more susceptible to viruses and inflammation if you're lonely and you're more resilient if you're if you feel socially connected, your risk of dementia, your risk of mental health, your stress responses, the quality of your sleep, the rate at which your cells age, and your longevity. I mean, most people have seen that you live longer if you um, if you have more friends. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not so much about more friends as the quality. When we're really talking about health, quality matters more than quantity, although quantity has, there are reasons why that is also a good thing. Um, but, um, but so to me, it's the, the effects on our health are, are the kind of mirror images from friendship and loneliness. So when you say quality of friendship, you're, are you talking about the, having a confidant or are you talking about, what are well, you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's one of the really interesting questions here that I think that this science has helped to clarify because defining friendship is a little bit um it's 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 a little amorphous for you, right? And people have different yeah. definitions. And it's one reason why kind of serious biologists and neuroscientists weren't studying friendship for a long time because in science you really do need to be able to define and to measure things. You have to be able to compare measurements. Um, but one of the things that happened is that, and I am getting to the answer here of quality, but there's a little backstory. Yeah. <laughs> that is that um that uh one of the ways we began to understand, so for a very, very long time, hundreds, thousands of years, we thought we knew friendship was wonderful and pleasurable, but we thought it was primarily cultural, like a, you know, a nice byproduct of human language and civilization. And of course, there are many, many cultural layers to friendship. But understanding that it had this biology and evolutionary story actually required partly the health stuff that we just talked about, but also the the beginning to see that friendship or something like it existed in all these other species, especially in non-human primates like monkeys and apes who are more like us. And once scientists did that, 
then they were able to measure what exactly was in these strong bonds that these other animals had and shared. And they found that, for instance, in these baboons in Africa, that the ones with the strong positive bonds um, lived longer and had more and healthier babies. And in evolutionary terms, you can't do better than that, longevity and, and reproductive success. So that's kind of what everybody's after. And then they were able, because in baboons, it's a little simpler. You can strip out the complex variables that you get with human lives. And what they were able to do was define a quality positive bond or the definition of quality and friendship as needing three things. It has to be stable and long-lasting. It's positive, so it makes the individuals involved feel good. And it's cooperative. There's a reciprocity and a kind of helpfulness to it. Um, and that turns out to apply to humans pretty well as well. Um, and in fact, when an anthropologist went looking at friendship across all of the cultures of the world, um, he found that the universals were very similar. The themes were similar, that, um, that the things that were most common were that friendship was reported as making you feel good, so it was positive, and that it involved being helpful, especially in times of need. Um, and so there's you know similar themes. And so I think when all the other things we talk about with friendship, like so a lot of people will tell you that friendship is about loyalty or trust, or those things are there, but that comes in the positive and the cooperative parts of that definition. So that is my quality friendship definition. It needs to be long-lasting, positive, and cooperative. And you need all three um, so that, you know, long-lasting, you can like someone from the minute you meet them, but to really become deep friends, you need time. Um, And so if we, and we should, we can look at all of our relationships through that lens and kind of make it a template for all relationships, actually. Um, not Absolutely. just our friends. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great definition. Who wouldn't want those three things? Well, exactly, and and it translates into how we can be better friends too. What does it mean to be a good friend? I think it means being a steady, reliable presence in someone's life. That's the stable part. It means making them feel good, the positive part, and it means showing up and being helpful and and reciprocating so that the relationship's not too lopsided. Um, and so it's a um, especially as we're coming out of this pandemic and um, you know our whole social lives have been shaken up. I think it's a it's a good moment for a little refresh and for thinking not just about what your friends give to you, but what you give to them and whether you are in fact um, delivering quality on your end. <laughs> now, some people seem to have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. We're talking about quantity now. Uh, right. Others have only a few. And then, of course, there are some that are isolated. Um, I, I was uh, fascinated to see that animal researchers have found the same continuum among monkeys. Talk, <laughs> talk about those differences and the, their implications. Yes. So there's a range of normal, I guess you could say. Uh, and that exists in, you know, so some monkeys are... Um, you know, friends with a whole lot of people. So actually what what researchers are doing both in humans and in other species is doing social network analysis where now the the powerful computers we have allow you to to chart and kind of map who's connected to who in what ways. And there are different 
definitely different styles that we have. I think the the easiest way to sum it up, though, is that um, there was a psychologist uh, in the 90s working on this, and then people have updated it. But she developed um, the idea that there were three friendship styles in humans, and um, they're discerning. So that's one, and that's the most common, which is where you have just a handful of close friends. You you prefer to spend time with a few people, but you have deep relationships with them. Independent people are more consider themselves more self sufficient, and their um, relationships are more circumstantial. So they're friendly with people while they're working with them, but they don't necessarily work to maintain that relationship, for instance. Um, and they're that are the fewest of that. And then the last category is acquisitive. <laughs> um, and the more recent research breaks this down into two subsets. So you can be selectively acquisitive um, and you can be unconditionally acquisitive. And basically, as it sounds like uh, acquisitive people are kind of adding friends as they go through life um, and maintaining relationships and enjoy having a lot of friendships. Um the selective ones maybe have a, are you know a little as it as this it's exactly like it sounds selective and unconditional. So unconditional is just you sort of gathering as many people around you as you can, right? Um, and you tend to introduce your friends to each other. That's one of the interesting differences. Is are you do you have separate relationships with people, or are you in one tight little group, um, or? Do you know different people, but you work to connect them? Um, and all of those things are possible. And and all of it is, um, it, it works. There's no one way to do friendship. That's what's interesting. But it does matter that you have this handful of very quality relationships at the core. You have to kind of start at the center and work out. Um and I don't know if everybody realizes that, like, it isn't, it just isn't possible to have the same kind of relationship with everyone in your life. And you don't need to, like, you, we don't have enough time. <laughs> and, and literally, we don't have enough brain width, <laughs> or right. brain bandwidth, I guess is what I want to say, um, to do that. And so um, you, I mean, a friend I had lunch with just the other day, she, she said that was one of the most striking things to her was that she always felt this pressure to be equally good friends with this wide range of people. And reading my book made her realize that she didn't actually have to be or that, you know, that wasn't necessarily expected. Um, but so she would be someone who's acquisitive because she's got all these friends, right? And she's, um, but but there are differences. There are sort of these concentric circles of, of our friends. There's the inner circle and then the next one out is maybe 10 to 15 people and then going on out like that. And that's okay. That's how it works. But anyway, I've gotten a little bit away from what your original question was, but it's, uh, I think it's related. Um, but so any of it is good, just not that really independent, self-sufficient thinking you don't need anybody. You're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. <coughs> so that's even if you're not rejected, that is if you choose to be aloof or distant or independent, uh, both are equally bad for your health? Well, no, both are not equally bad for your health. So if we're going to be specific, so there are differences. So loneliness, the difference between loneliness and social isolation is interesting. Um, it's an objective versus a subjective situation. So social isolation that so many people around the world had to experience during the pandemic is an objective counting 
of the size of your social network and the number of social interactions that you have. Um, loneliness is the subjective sense that there's a mismatch between the amount of social connection you want and the amount you have. So if you are socially isolated, but you truly are not lonely, then you're better off. But unfortunately, even that objective social isolation, people who are socially isolated or who live alone do tend to die earlier than people who are not. Um, but the loneliness is the worst thing for you, that that feeling of dissatisfaction. Um, but interestingly, loneliness is a little like stress. So a little bit of loneliness is actually good for you because it's a biological warning signal that your body needs to connect, that you need to connect. It looks deep in the brain. It looks like hunger pangs. It works like hunger and thirst to tell you to do something about it. The problem is when it becomes chronic, it starts to lead to all kinds of problems in your body. And um, just like stress does, so a little stress helps you, you know, deal in a crisis or do well on a test or giving a presentation or talking on a podcast. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but you know, a lot of stress, chronic stress, is terrible for you. Um, and loneliness is very similar. It a lot, a chronic loneliness is terrible for you. That's very interesting that that uh, it it works that way, like a warning, mm -hmm. and it's like pain, like physical pain. If you, yeah. if you break your arm, it's good that it hurts because then you go see an orthopedist. You don't get help. Said it, exactly. Right? Exactly. But if you have chronic pain that is not serving as a warning, all sorts of terrible things happen. Um, and uh, so, okay, there are the close friendships and there are the other levels of friendship. It's quite an elastic term. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it was very interesting the part you wrote about um, the immune system impact. Yes. Uh, the comparison, which uh, I, I thought might be a researcher's leap, but it was still very powerful. The comparison between closeted gay men and mm. HIV mm -hmm. and uh, monkeys with unstable social conditions. Explain that to us. That's well, this is so fascinating. This this question of how loneliness might get into the immune system is really what we're talking about here. And it gives you some sense of how scientific ideas evolve. So this man named Steve Cole uh, in, Cal in Los Angeles was studying um, how genes are expressed in the body. And so, you know, we all start out in the world with a set of genes that kind of lay a template for who we're going to be, but whether those genes get expressed, to use the technical term, or basically whether they get turned on or off, depends a lot on experience and what happens to you uh, in life. And, and Steve Cole thought was, he thought that your social experience might be having an effect on whether your genes um, are expressed or not. And so in gay men with HIV AIDS in the 90s, he uh, what would what people were finding was that closeted gay men were getting sicker and dying faster than men who were openly gay. And that had to be that the virus was replicating faster in those men. And why would that be? And so Steve Cole's theory was that that being closeted had an effect on their social lives. It was a social stress and that 
somehow that was changing the way their immune system worked. And he was talking about this research and he ended up sort of crossing paths with a guy named John Cassiopo, who was a social psychologist at the University of Chicago, who was one of, who really the pioneer of this whole new science of loneliness. And Cassiopo was fascinated by, um, by Steve's work in um, gay men and this idea that the virus was replicating faster, which it which it was actually in the in these in the closeted gay men versus the openly gay men, and so what Cassiopo asked Cole to do was to, he said, I as it happens, I have a whole bunch of blood sub- samples from lone, very lonely people and very uh, socially content people, um, you know, people with lots of friends and he had these samples in his freezer. And so they did this little test run and they found basically the exact same thing was happening in the lonely people that was happening in the closeted gay men. I mean, not exact same, but we're talking about different things here, but what it came down to was that in the immune system, genes were expressed differently if you were lonely or if you were feeling this social stress um, and uh, you know, to jump forward a whole lot, <laughs> what they, what they figured out is that, that your gene expression changes in ways that make you more or less susceptible or resilient to viruses and to inflammation. Um, and ultimately Steve Cole called this, um, it's got a technical name, CTRA. It's the conserved transcriptional response to adversity. Um, and (laughs) it, but what it, what it turns out is that there, that our bodies do this in the face of all kinds of different adversities and loneliness is just one of them. But why this really matters is because it really tells you that loneliness is right up there with other really awful things that people go through, like living through trauma and war, living through poverty, living through, you know, um, it's a, it's a, so it's not unique to loneliness, this particular response in the immune system, but it is, it has to do with, with adversity and with difficult experiences. And so the same thing that was happening in the men with HIV happening in the people who were very lonely and then has since been found in, you know, children who were, who grew through, who lived through war and people who dealt with other kinds of extreme trauma. So that is the link between the men with HIV AIDS and loneliness. And it was found in monkeys. And it was found in monkeys. Right. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So there, there was an additional line of research where they, um, at UC Davis, another Steve, Steve Capitano, um, he, there's a, there's a monkey version of HIV called simian immuno, uh, I'm forgetting exactly, it was SIV, and in the monkeys, um, they were able, you know, because when you're looking at animals, they're able to discover more of, um, of what's going on. They were able to see just exactly how, um, this, the virus was replicating faster. What they did was, so monkeys, you can't exactly change the social lives of the monkeys in ways that, that mirror, you know, well, mirror human differences. But what they could do was they could change what's, what's truly social, socially stressful for monkeys is having to hang out with unfamiliar monkeys. And so they had different, um, different, 
sets of animals who had more or less stable social environments. So some were put back in the same cage every day with the same monkeys and others had it, their social lives changed up every day uh, in a way that induces real social stress in the monkeys. And the ones who lived in the unstable social environments had the same kinds of, um, they had faster replication of the virus in their, in their bodies. Um, and, uh, and not only that, but it, it was spreading through the body in, in ways, I mean, it's, it's pretty technical, but it, it was clear that the social environment was having this fundamental effect on the cells and on the gene expression in a way that nobody would have ever imagined was possible. I mean, how is it that a relationship that exists outside your body, you know, could get in and change the way your cells respond um, to a virus? Uh, But it does. And it apparently goes even further than just outside your body and inside Uh, The research uh, that showed that the influence of friends extends three degrees away, which means your friend's friends, somebody you don't even know, influences everything from your voting behavior to obesity and smoking. And what do you make of that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. There's... um... Yes. So that is the work of Nicholas Christakis and um, James Fowler. And they have used that social network analysis that I mentioned earlier um, to to map out the connections between large groups of people. And what they find is, yes, there is this there is this knock on effect to to um, three degrees of separation uh, where you are much more likely to have all kinds of similarities with those people that are within the three degrees of separation. And then it kind of falls off. Um, and they, um, and that I, I talked earlier about the neuroscientists and looking at the way your brain processes the audio and visual world, auditory and visual world. And that also shows up basically to the same kind of three degrees of separation and then kind of falls apart where you are more similar processing wise um, within those first three degrees and of, of connection and then, and then not so much. And so it's very, um, I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, we, again, we don't entirely get why, but what it tells us is yes, that our, that our friendships and our relationships are having this fundamental effect on our bodies in all kinds of ways. And yeah, they showed, I think Christakis and Fowler showed they, it, you know, happiness is spread through this kind of chain, but so is sadness. And yes, your propensity to smoke or to quit smoking or to be obese, um, to, uh, yes, your political, I mean, some of that makes sense, right? You're, you're more likely to talk about things like political choices with the people around you. Um, but some of it is just really surprising. Um, and it is, uh, and so it just tells us about the power of the people in our lives. And, and genes play a role in friendship too. Uh, tell us about twin studies. Uh, yes. Well, so twin studies are very, very important in genetics um, because they, they can give us a sense of how much, um, your, uh, how much of any particular trait or behavior 
is explained by heredity, by gen- by um, genetics, and how much is due to other things. And um, so they've been able to use um, twin studies and, and genetics to discover that there is some sort of basic sociability that your genes help determine. But it isn't, um, I, I actually am forgetting the exact um, percentage, uh, but it's uh, it's not huge compared to other things, uh, but it is, so environment makes a big difference, but it does mean that there's some sociability that is passed down through um, through families. Uh, and also, Chris Dacus and Fowler found that, that we are, so your friends, you are actually more likely, you are more genetically similar to your friends um, than you would imagine. It's kind of like to the degree of fourth cousins. Uh, and they, they posit that maybe that means friends are sort of like functional kin. And this goes beyond, this is more than just the idea that, you know, we tend to have friends who, who look like us, who maybe are the same race or ethnicity or, um, and so obviously you might think that your genes are more likely to be similar, but it isn't, it's, it's, it's well beyond that. And so there's this, there is this similarity in our genes with our friends and in the way we process the world and in, um, you know, our level of sociability with our fam within our families and our, and so, yes, it's, it's down at this very, very, at the level of our DNA and our neurons, you know, friendship is at work. (laughs) Well, finally, um, Let's talk a bit about culture that impacts friendship styles. Mm. Um, you bring the example of Dutch social scientists uh, who posed the passenger's dilemma question to a huge number, uh, 30,000, I think it was, white collar workers in many, many, many different countries. So tell us, what is the passenger's dilemma and what did <clears throat> they find? <laughs> yes. So I, I spoke at the beginning about the similarities in how people handle friendship, but this research revealed the differences, the cultural differences in different countries. Um, and so the passenger's dilemma is a is a famous philosophical question of, um, it, you know, basically sums up that you're the passenger in a car, your friend is driving and they're speeding and they hit someone. And then your friend asks them you to uh, lie and say that they weren't speeding. Um, so would you lie for your friend to protect your friend, or would you tell the truth because you're, um, if if you're determined to tell the truth, then it it reflects a sort of interest in law and order and and in, you know, government a belief in um, in right and wrong at government. Well, not right and wrong. A belief in um, in in law and order. Let's leave it at that. And what they found is that there's a really enormous difference, actually, in different countries in terms of what percentage of people are going to lie for their friends and 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 who who are not. And so um, I think it was seven in ten in Venezuela would lie for their friends, versus in um, Switzerland and the U.S. It was one in ten. Um, I may be getting the numbers not exactly right, but it's close to that. Um, and uh, and we don't know why, but the thinking or or there's an overlay that you can do that an anthropologist did where he discovered that in the countries where people were more likely to lie for their friends, there was 
less stability and less economic security. And so it kind of makes sense that you actually need your friends more than you need, like, you know, law and order, the, the rule of law in some places um, that, you know, who are you going to rely on when you're in trouble? Is it the state or is it your friend? Um, and in countries where there was uh, more economic security, more political stability, people were less likely to lie for their friends. Um, so, you know, this we, we don't know for sure what what explains it, but the difference is clearly there. And there is this really fascinating difference then in the corresponding levels of political stability and security. Lydia, <clears throat> I've enjoyed talking with you about one of my favorite subjects, uh, <laughs> friends and friendships. Uh, before I let you go, can you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. I am co-writing a book with a woman, uh, Dr. Dana Suskind at the University of Chicago, and it is all about the importance of early brain development and how society needs to um, to help <laughs> make that work better for parents and, um, and caregivers. And the pandemic has only made it clearer how, at least here in the United States, um, childcare fell apart. And so um, it's not just about childcare, it's about brain development, which is a subject near and dear to my heart, almost as much as friendship. Yeah. Well, I wish you lots of good luck with the new project. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. And thanks for your very important work on a vital subject that turns out to be even more vital than we thought. <laughs> Thank you, Renee. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Mm-hmm.